Chapter 2 of With the Anzacs in Cairo by Guy Thornton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 The City of Cairo. Cairo, or Maser, has been described as being the diamond stud in the handle of the fan of the Delta. A cursory glance at the map will convince anyone of the aptness of the statement. It is not only the greatest city in Africa, but possesses a much larger Mohammedan population than any other town in the world. It is the literary center of Islam, and within its confines is to be found the greatest of all theological institutions, the Al-Azhar, in which about 12,000 men are trained for the Mohammedan priesthood. Its population must now approximate three-quarters of a million. Kipling sang, From east is east, and west is west, and never the twain shall meet. But here east and west have met. It is doubtful whether any other city of its size can boast of such a heterogeneous population. Let the experienced traveler sit for half an hour on the great piazza of the Continental Hotel, and he can easily distinguish the following races passing along the street in front. Ethiopians, Nubians, Sudanese, Syrians, Sikhs, Jews, Persians, Arabs, Armenians, British, Australians, New Zealanders, French, Italians, Americans, and other smaller nationalities too numerous to mention. The air is full of a babel of tongues, amidst which Arabic and English predominate. The latter language has, owing to the great influx of troops during the past year or so, largely displaced French. Arabic is a most unpleasant-sounding language, being harsh and guttural to a degree. But it commends itself very strongly to any man whose orthography is not his strongest point, for each word is spelt just as a speaker happens to fancy it sounds, as the following examples will show. The town of Asyut can be spelled in nearly a dozen different ways. Asyut, Osyut, Osyut, Siut, Osiot, Siut, etc., etc. Arabic certainly leaves room for individuality. When doubtful as to the exact spelling or pronunciation, it is always safe to write it or speak it as seemeth best. And all is right. Mohammedism can be spelt in a variety of ways, and the Prophet's name in half a dozen. I only wish that in my school days I had been permitted to take the same liberties with the English language. I am afraid I sometimes did, but I have vivid and painful recollections of the fact that my efforts were not appreciated. Night and day, the cafes are full inside and out with a motley throng of customers. Chairs are placed nearly across the footpaths of the very best streets. Here men sit, smoke, and play backgammon. The streets swarm with peddlers who accost each passerby with earnest requests to buy. They are an unspeakable nuisance and should be suppressed if only to obviate the bad language their persistence evokes. It is impossible to travel a couple of hundred yards near Shepherd's Hotel without being pestered by sellers of flower stands, highly colored Sudanese beads, walking sticks, peanuts, muslins, silks, or photographs, some of which are good, but others vile beyond words. As soon as one leaves you, another takes his place. But of all the nuisances in Cairo, the chief is the boot black. He is everywhere. It is almost impossible to have a meal in a cafe without one of the craft sidling up and asking if he should clean boots, sir. These pests 
watch the approach of a soldier from the camp at Helma to the railway station, then rush up and demand that they should clean his boots. If he is brave, or obstinate enough to reach Cairo, without yielding to their importunity, the same thing is repeated as soon as he emerges from the station gates. He shakes his head, but that is not sufficient. He threatens them with his cane, but to no purpose. Carefully keeping at arm's length, the bootblack walks round him, scrutinizing with evident disapprobation on his dirty face, the soldier's boots. To escape, the latter takes the first car, but when he alights, he is surrounded by a small host of the enemy, and as a rule, succumbs. Queen Mary said that, when she died, the word Calais would be found engraven on her heart. I always thought her heart unusually hard. But when the Kyrene dies, he must heave a sigh of the deepest relief, <sighs> for he knows that when he passes into the great beyond, he will not be greeted with a familiar and exasperating cry of, Clean your boots, sir! Bargaining is the one thing the Egyptian loves. A rich native will be quite content to spend an hour or more seeking to beat down the price of his purchases for two piesters. To give a hawker what he first demands would probably be a dangerous method of procedure, since his early demise from heart shock would almost certainly result. The following is a typical deal. The day is hot, and the only fruits that it is safe to eat are those upon which nature has bestowed a skin. The guileless Egyptian has the unfortunate habit of cleaning the luscious-looking strawberries by the simple and effective process of placing them in his mouth and licking them vigorously and thoroughly. After this treatment, they look so fresh and clean that, did you not know how they had been washed, it would require considerable strength of mind to resist successfully the temptation to purchase them. Grapes need the most careful cleansing before being safe to eat. The ideal fruit is the oranges, despite the fact that the hawker invariably carries them next to his extremely dirty skin inside the blouse of his galabia. The familiar cry of, Oranges! Oranges! Very nice! Very sweet! Very clean! Sounds in your ears from morning to night. You ask, how much? Four piesters! Very nice! Very sweet! Very clean! Too much! Imshi! Go away! He will let you go on about ten yards, and then he returns to the attack. Three piesters, good oranges, very nice, etc. Yala, a stronger mode of saying, go away. Two piesters, good oranges, etc. Waved away, though only for a few yards, he runs up to you saying, One piester, you take him, take him, get me money. The Israelites spoiled the Egyptians. I don't think any other race but the Jews would have succeeded. Ever since, the Egyptian has been spoiling everyone who has been so unfortunate as to have any business transactions with him. The Arabia cab driver is, as far as my knowledge of men goes, absolutely preeminent in his lack of brains. Certainly, his cruelty to his horses is past belief. I once got into an Arabia at the Pont Lamoon railway station and directed the driver to take me to Davies Bryan's one of the chief business establishments in Cairo, asking him at the same time whether he knew where it was. Oh, yes, sir. All right, sir. He drove off, lashing his horse into a canter and then into a hand gallop. But in what I knew was the wrong direction, I stopped him and pointed out the right way. Off he went again, and soon turned down a street which led diametrically opposite direction to the right one, and repeated this operation 
until I had to direct him at every turn by saying Shamalek to the right or Yamanak to the left. In Alexandria, I took a cab, and after giving the driver the address and receiving his voluble assurances that he knew the way, I didn't. He drove me for over an hour and ultimately pulled up at the very place from which he had started. He had not the slightest idea where I wanted to go and had been beamingly content to drive aimlessly about the city, covering, I suppose, six or seven miles. I then made him drive me to my destination, but his contentment disappeared and gave place to cursing when I paid him the legal fare. I knew enough Arabic to understand something of what he said, but until he had finished his remarks, I did not realize how unutterably base, vile, and filthy were my ancestors for at least a dozen generations. He evidently knew a great deal more about them than I did, and from the trend of his discourse was strongly predisposed to hold to the Darwinian theory of the origin of man. For sheer, crass, downright, incurable stupidity it would be, I hope, impossible to surpass the Egyptian cabman. One early morning, I was wakened by the sound of howling and wailing. At first, I was inclined to think it was some stray cur that had been receiving a sound thrashing. But, since the noise continued, I went out and saw a soldier administering a doubtless well-deserved hiding to a Berber who had been caught prowling about the camp. When I thought matters had gone quite far enough, I stepped up and stopped the soldier. In his gratitude, the Berber flung himself at my feet and commenced kissing my shoes, whilst tears were pouring from his eyes. Certainly the lower classes, oppressed as they have been from time immemorial, are not only not manly, but are despicable in many other ways. And unfortunately the soldiers, for the most part, only came into contact with the uneducated of the population, and consequently hardly a man had a good word to say for the native. Although the vast majority of the inhabitants of Cairo are Mohammedans, Nearly all religions are represented. The following statistics will reveal their strength. Mohammedans, about 500,000. Copts, the Coptic Church, about 50,000. Greek Church, about 20,000. Jews, about 20,000. I have not been able to obtain late figures as to the numbers of the Anglican, Presbyterian, Methodist, and other Protestant communions. The Catholics have a lovely cathedral, and the Basilica, their church at Heliopolis, is one of the show-places of Cairo. Since there are so many Italians and French Kyrenes, they must be a very strong body. The American mission, with its 196 educational institutions, where 16,500 pupils are gathered, has contributed as far as I am able to judge more than any other religious organization to raise the Egyptian nation from the spiritual lethargy in which it has been sunk for ages. Its work has been mainly among the Copts, the lineal descendants of the pharaohs, and has resulted not only in the upbuilding of many of their churches, but in quickening to an appreciable extent the spiritual life of the Coptic church itself. The Egyptian general mission, whose labors are mainly directed towards securing converts from Mohammedanism, have already, although comparatively speaking, only recently established, accomplished a splendid work. Their headquarters at Zaytun became the home of many of our boys, and there are hundreds who will look back upon Mr. Logan's and Mr. Swan's hospitality with deep gratitude. Indeed, 
words fail adequately to express the magnificent hospitality shown to our men by all members of these two missions. End of chapter 2